Our skin is a complex organ that contains a highly specialized immunologic system that is used for the maintenance of tissue homeostasis, defense, and repair. To discuss the structure of the skin and its intrinsic defensive mechanisms, we have the pleasure of welcoming Dr. George Stengel on the podcast, who is a world expert on immunology of the skin. In other words, an immunodermatologist. Dr. Stingle is the chairman of the Division of Immunology, Allergy and Infectious Disease, and the Department of Dermatology at the Medical University of Vienna in Austria. He has received several prestigious awards, such as the William Montagna Award and the Stefan Rothman Award of the Society for Investigative Dermatology and the Lifetime Achievement Award of the American Skin Association. He is an honorary member of the Society for Investigative Dermatology and the European Society for Dermatological Research, a member of the Austrian and German Academy of Sciences, and in 2013 was elected Foreign Associate Member of the Institute of Medicine in the U.S. National Academies. Dr. Stengel, it is a real pleasure to have you on the Derm Club podcast today. Uh, Thank you very much for the very kind introduction. And, uh, and uh, you, you have mentioned everything that is of importance. Uh, mm-hmm. There's only one thing I would add to, to, uh, to uh, define <laughs> my role as a physician and as a scientist. Yes, it is true. I am an immunodermatologist. In other words, I look at patients with immunologically mediated skin diseases, but at the same time, I'm also kind of a cutaneous immunobiologist who, who uh, did and does kind of uh, basic immunologic research uh, with the skin as the major substrate. Okay, thank you for adding that. So there are many different layers to the skin. But from an epidemiologic standpoint, why do we need all these layers? You know, um, we have the epidermis, we have the dermis, and we have the subcutaneous yeah. fat. So, uh, so in general, uh, we have uh, three layers that you just mentioned, and uh, uh, for quite a long time, we um, defined the skin simply as a physical barrier organ. And uh, uh, in the meantime, we know that this definition is not enough. There's no question, the the, the physical barrier is very, very important. And in this regard, the third layer, the subcutaneous fat uh, and the adipose tissue is a very important cushion that protects us against too heavy uh, of a trauma. But this is certainly not enough. In the meantime, we know that the skin is a physical barrier. The skin is a chemical barrier. The skin is an immunological barrier, and the skin is also a microbiological barrier. And God knows what we will find in the years to come. So it's a it's a very multifaceted um, uh, understanding of the protective role of the skin. Um, and um, the the challenge for the skin is pretty high. Mm-hmm. It has to be, we have to separate ourselves from the environment to some extent. In other words, we should not allow that pathogens 
or some kind of dangerous subjects, objects, or let me just simply say danger signals reach us. But at the same time, we cannot completely separate ourselves from the environment. So we, the, the skin, especially the epidermis, has to be like a sieve, like a tea sieve, where we are able to exchange fluids, sweats, but it should not look like a Swiss cheese. The holes should not be so big that bacteria or large proteins and whatever enter the skin. And if this happens, then we have uh, uh, barrier defects and skin diseases caused by these barrier defects, such as ichthyosis, such as atopic dermatitis and many others. So how do we maintain that balance so that we don't have too much, but not too little? Okay, so thank God uh, the, uh, we have under normal circumstances, a pretty good genetic equipment. This is very, very important that the regulation of protein expression and gene expression in the skin runs in a correct fashion. And we all know what happens if um, protein synthesis, if the regulation of protein synthesis does not work, then we have big troubles. If you look at patients with ichthyosis, for instance, who uh, have mutations in the filigree gene, um, you are all familiar with uh, um, children with epidermolysis bullosa who don't have an appropriate attachment between the epidermis and the dermis. So, so what I'm saying is um, the, the, the basic requirement is an appropriate function of gene expression in the skin. This is a prerequisite. But number two, uh, there are many epigenetic factors that influence the correct functioning of the skin. Uh, I think best known to most of the people is ultraviolet radiation. Ultraviolet radiation uh, can uh, lead to a disturbance uh, not only of the physical barrier, but mostly of the immunological barrier. If you have or if you uh, have uh, photo aging or uh, UV irradiation or unprotected UV irradiation for too long a time, then we know very well that the immune function uh, of the skin is no longer maintained. And this causes, uh, together with direct carcinogenesis and keratinocytes, this also causes immunosuppression. And this type of immunosuppression um, uh, makes it more likely that patients or people will develop skin cancer uh, white skin cancer, but also uh, uh, pigmented lesions and others. So it, it is, it is a, a, a malfunctioning of both of the genetic basis and the epigenetic influences that favor uh, the development of skin pathologies in general. So I know you touched upon how skin um, really acts as a barrier to avoid in, um, any infecting pathogens that are trying to get in. Can you give us some more details about that and what, which things play an important role in protecting us? 
from from infecting pathogens. Okay. Uh, um, there, there is some knowledge that we gathered from observations of human skin and human disease. And there are other observations or other concepts and hypotheses developed on the basis of experiments with uh, or studies in experimental animals. And, um, and in the case of the immune defense, we have, we have data both from human studies and from, from animals. There, there is one uh, discovery that is rather new. Uh, and this was derived from studies in mice. Uh, and, and we now know that commensal bacteria, totally innocuous, innocent bacteria that we all have on our skin, Staphylococcus hominis, epidermidis, and many other of the so-called commensal flora. Uh, these um, bacteria, they are not innocent bystanders. What they do, and we don't see that, this runs subclinically. These commensal bacteria, they activate the immune system, predominantly the adaptive immune system, which works in a loop that goes via dendritic cells and T cells. So in other, in other words, these commensal bacteria that train our immune system, the adaptive immune system of the skin in such a way that the skin is that the skin will be better prepared if a true challenge with uh, pathogenic bacteria occurs, such as with Staphylococcus aureus or uh, Pseudomonas and, and several others. So, um, so we have kind of a a subclinical immunological defense system. And what happens if, if, um, if we have a major, a major microbiologic challenge, then perhaps this system will not suffice. The system that I had just described will probably not suffice to protect us, uh, to protect us uh, uh, sufficiently. Um, in, in the case of a major microbiological challenge, we get the activation of both the innate immune system or elements of the innate immune system and of the adaptive immune system. Uh, we all know uh, that the adaptive immune response is a very, very rapid one, but it's also not very specific. It is kind of a promiscuous response happens almost immediately after the occurrence uh, of the challenge. And, uh, and there are certain cells and certain molecules uh, that uh, are a major part of this innate immune response. I mean, we all know neutrophil neutrophils. We all know monocytes and macrophages. Um, we also know molecules such as antimicrobial peptides that have the capacity to kill bacteria. And if uh, patients with atopic dermatitis, for instance, cannot produce these antimicrobial peptides in sufficient amounts, then they have problems. They have problems with staphylococcal superinfection. Mm -hmm. There's also a new population of lymphocytes that belong to the innate immune system that we uh, recognize only uh, 
since a few years. And these lymphocytes are called innate lymphoid cells. They don't have antigen receptors, but what mm. they do have, they have receptors where they recognize patterns, patterns on microorganisms, patterns on damaged cells, dams and PAMs, and then they become activated. And what these uh, elements of the innate immune system do is they attack the pathogen right away, but at the same time, they also prepare elements of the adaptive immune system to be better responsive to the microbial challenge. And, uh, and it is somewhat surprising, but um, we, we know the various cellular and molecular constituents of the adaptive immune system for a longer period of time than the innate immune response even though the innate immune response comes first. But uh, in, in the last 50 or 60 years, when, when we learned a lot about immune, skin immune functions, we focused at the beginning predominantly on the adaptive immune system. We realized the importance of dendritic cells, Langhans cells in the epidermis, dermal dendritic cells in the dermis. We also know now that there are also dendritic cells in the fat. Mm. And... Uh, and then we characterized the T cells of the skin in, in a very detailed fashion. And we know a lot about the T cells. Um, uh, we have also learned that certain lymphocytes don't like the skin. B cells don't like to go to the skin. And K cells, there are also not many NK cells in skin. But, uh, but uh, T cell function and... Uh, uh, and activation of T cells by dendritic cells, this is very well investigated. And so if you wish, there is a two-step process, challenge and threat by a danger signal. Step number one, activation of the innate immune system. Mm -hmm. If successful, this eliminates the pathogen right away. If the innate defense does not suffice. There is activation of the adaptive immune system. Uh, and uh, uh, as I just said, the innate system uh, helps to make the adaptive immune system well-tuned to these danger signals. So in diseases like atopic dermatitis, psoriasis, say, are we, are we, is our thinking now that the innate immune system is really not cranking up and working efficiently? Um, this is not a black and white answer that I can give you. Uh, in, the, in the diseases that you mentioned, in atopic dermatitis and in psoriasis, uh, we have very, very good evidence that both the elements of the innate immune system and the adaptive immune system play a very important role in the pathogenesis. Um, in the case of atopic dermatitis, we have lots and lots of T lymphocytes. These lymphocytes are, are mostly of the so-called type two, of type two. In other words, they produce uh, predominantly 
cytokines such as interleukin-4 and, and in humans mainly interleukin-13 and also interleukin-5. But in the meantime, we also know that in addition to the T cells, we also have innate lymphoid cells in the skin that produce the very same cytokines or very similar cytokines. What we do not yet know is what is the relative contribution of the adaptive response and the relative contribution of the innate response. This is not a trivial question because if we try to therapeutically uh, influence uh, the skin immune system, um, it makes a difference whether we try to target predominantly cells of the innate uh, response or of the adaptive immune response. But this is, this is uh, uh, being investigated in great detail by several groups around the world. And we, we have learned a lot in the last three or four years, and I guess we're going to learn even more in the years to come about this particular question. What role do you think the microbiome plays? Um, the microbiome, uh, I mean, first I, first I should say, are we talking about, is your question directed to the cutaneous microbiome or to the microbiome uh, uh, in general? Probably the both. cutaneous, right? Uh, both, right. Yeah. So, uh, so in the case of um, the, the microbiome in general, I think most of the evidence that we have and most of the studies that have been done have uh, were dealing with the intestinal microbiome, and uh, and you and I and we all are familiar about possible possible connections between malfunctioning of the gut microbiome and certain diseases, like even metabolic diseases. People maintain that diabetes and cardiovascular disease and many others are in some connection to the functioning or malfunctioning of the microbiome. We also know, and there's a lot of speculation about this, that there are uh, gender or sex differences in the composition of the microbiome between men and women. And it's also not entirely clear whether, whether these difference in, in the microbiome between men and women is perhaps responsible or co-responsible for the fact that certain diseases are more frequent in men and other diseases are more frequent in women. That's possible. In the case of the cutaneous microbiome, I should say that uh, we, we have several layers of the cutaneous microbiome. We have, and I just mentioned already, the commensals that are out there uh, on the surface of the skin, but uh, we also have an indigenous microbiome at, at deeper layers. We know most about the, the, the role of the, the epicutaneous and the epidermal microbiome. And one of the, one of the roles uh, of, the, of the epidermal microbiome um, I have mentioned already, and this is the fact that uh, some of the bacteria that we have, uh, some of the innocuous bacteria that we have on top of our skin, that they uh, uh, induce a subclinical non-visible immune reaction that makes our immune system 
um, fit for the challenge that we have in the case of a real pathogen. This is probably very important also because of the fact that the bacteria that we know that are on top of the skin, many of these harm, harmless uh, staphylococci and also others, they can produce antimicrobial peptides and they can kill staph aureus. Uh, and uh, this is probably one of the reasons why, especially in patients with atopic dermatitis, where we have major problems with staphylococcal skin infection, people um, like the group of Dr. Gallo uh, in San Diego and others, they have tried to, to make um, transplants of a functioning cutaneous microbiome from a healthy person to individuals who suffer from very severe atopic dermatitis. I mean, these studies have not been completed, uh, but uh, uh, it's not yet clear whether this approach will work. But, um, but I think what we always should keep in mind, uh, as dermatologists, we often said when patients had skin super infections, right? What we often did, we either used topical antiseptics, we used bleaching, we administered the antibiotics to our patients and only focusing on the presence of uh, Staphylococcus aureus. And we often did not uh, think about the fact that we also destroy or damage uh, the good part of our microbiome. And, uh, and uh, this is an issue or a question, a problem that we have not yet resolved. Uh, there, there is no question that if you have severe infection of the skin that you will use antibiotics. That's not the point, but we should not be too, too uh, uh, easygoing. Uh, if you see a few follicles and you see a few pimples that we immediately start with uh, systemic antibiotics, we have to be a little bit more careful and allow the, the components of our skin microbiome to defend ourselves. Hmm. How, do you feel the same way about steroids? Um, yes, to some extent. Yes, to some extent. But I, I think in the case of critical steroids, I, I should make another statement, which I think where many dermatologists make major mistakes. Uh, somehow, especially, especially in the US and Europe, and also, I, I guess, also in, in Japan and Asia, there is a certain corticophobia in the population. So kind of as if corticosteroids would be the worst in the world. And, and, and this is not true. Sometimes corticosteroids can be very helpful. But we as physicians and also as dermatologists, uh, we, often give, we often give wrong advice. In the case of corticosteroids, I think the most important thing is to, be, to administer them in a workable, robust concentration, but for a short period of time. So you should allow them to work 
you should allow corticosteroids to interrupt a pathogenic loop, but then you should try everything to lower the concentration and then to stop it. The mistake that we often do is we use extremely weak corticosteroids. We apply them to the skin. We tell the patient you apply these corticosteroids to the skin. They do it for one week, two weeks. The whole thing doesn't get better. So they continue to apply it further. And the result is the clinical, the clinical improvement of the skin disease does not occur. But at the same time, if you apply them for three or four weeks and longer and longer and longer, you get skin atrophy, teleangiectasis, and all the other things. So I think we as physicians should, uh, should uh, um, advise our patients in the correct fashion. And then corticosteroids are an important, an important part of our therapeutic armamentarium. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned using mice models. Why do we choose to use murine mice models? Are there limitations and are there any better models to mimic uh, skin immunology? The, I, I really, the, the last person who, who denies the importance of, of animal models in general or mice models. And in my own research, I have worked a lot, a lot uh, with mice and, uh, uh, but we should also understand that some of the investigations that had to be done with mice simply for ethical reasons, but also for technological reasons could not be done with human tissues. And there were certain limitations. These limitations to some extent still exist. But what, I, what I'd like to emphasize is we have now new technologies uh, where we can investigate the human substrate in great, great detail, and we can extricate important information. I, I guess you and all the others, we are familiar now with uh, single cell RNA sequencing. We can look at individual uh, cells in normal skin and disease skin and can, can get very, very important information as what they do and how they function. Mm -hmm. So the, the issue is not to completely replace animal models. Certainly not. The animal models will always have their place because certain things cannot be done in man. But what I'm saying is some of some very important information about uh, uh, disease pathogenesis and also about therapeutic targets can be gathered by uh, human investigations. And I think this is the, to me, is the great excitement that we can do that now, that we can take four millimeter or six millimeter biopsies and can get an idea about the whole repertoire of the different skin cell populations. Uh, I think it's an exciting time. And, and we should also not forget we still don't have the ideal models for psoriasis. We don't have an ideal model for uh, uh, atopic dermatitis, not even for contact dermatitis. And actually, um, if I take away certain genetic diseases, 
Um, um, I know of only very, very few models that exactly mirror okay, breaking human research. Should we, we should use that in order to, uh, to uh, make progress. Uh, amazing. It, it shows where science is really going right. and how, how far it's come. Yeah. And also, and also what, what goes together with it. I mean, uh, um, we, we have now have this revolution in analysis and interpretation of data the area of artificial intelligence that influences uh, our type of research. We can gather important information from all these sequencing data, for instance. And now we also have the technology to interpret this data and display them. This is an amazing, an, an amazing development, mostly in the last 10 years. I, I think it's, it's, it's fascinating. You, and you have, in, in your young age, you have great decades of excitement in front of you. Thanks to you, because you've opened those doors. <laughs> so A little we didn't, bit. <laughs> we didn't really get to talk about Langerhans cells. Um, can you please share with us the importance of Langerhans cells, what they do, um, how our understanding of linker cells have really changed how we treat chronic skin disease? Um, I, I wanna make that short uh, and I wanna divide my answer in three portions. Uh, portion number one, uh, there was a medical student in Berlin in 1868, I think. Uh, and he was a very gifted guy. He discovered two things. He discovered cells in the skin where he thought these cells are part of the nervous system. And then also known to every physician, he discovered the eyelids and the pancreas, right? And the cells in the skin, for hundred years, we had no idea whatsoever what these cells are doing. And, um, and many people, actually some very famous dermatologists and skin researchers thought that these cells are an artifact and that, that they don't even exist or just are dead. A very, a very uh, frequent theory was that Langerhans cells are dead melanocytes, right? Mm -hmm. And then we and others in the 1970s, uh, uh, we discovered that these cells are not dead, and and uh, and, uh, and and we found out that that these cells have typical features and typical phenotypic features of cells of the immune system. And uh, very much at the same time, investigators in New York, Dr. Steinman and others, discovered uh, dendritic cells in the spleen. And the Langerhans cells looked also dendritic. So the idea came up, there is perhaps in the whole body, a system of dendritic cells that is uh, of immunological importance. Uh, we and others then found that these cells can stimulate T cells and are very potent stimulators of T cells. 
And, uh, and the idea came up that the immune responses in the skin, that they, are, that they all originate from lung Hun cells. The lung Hun cells that sit outside in the epidermis. So if some kind of dangerous bacterium comes along, they can pick it up and activate T cells. This was a very simple view of the function of these lung Hun cells. Also because people found out that lung Hun cells are not the only dendritic cells in skin. Lung Hun cells are the major dendritic cells in the epidermis, but there are other similar dendritic cells in the dermis. And, um, and then um, it turned out that under homeostatic conditions, if there's no challenge, lung Hun cells are probably important to prevent an activation of the immune system. In other words, it would be, it wouldn't make sense that if we would, if we would mount uh, a very potent uh, immune reaction against innocuous birch poles, it would also not make too much sense to mount a productive immune response against human dander if we scratch our, it doesn't make sense. Right. We should rather prevent the occurrence of such an undesired response. But on the other hand, if there is a major challenge, a major pathogenic challenge, then these cells should be prepared to do that. And this is what our understanding currently is that under, under uh, homeostatic conditions, we should rather prevent the occurrence of exaggerated immune responses. But in the case of real danger, lung Hun cells, but perhaps even more so dermal dendritic cells and others, they should mount a, uh, uh, a strong response. This is our current understanding. But we should also not forget lung Hun cells in the epidermis, they are in a very intimate, extremely intimate contact with nerve endings. Uh, we know that, but we don't know yet what that means. In, in other words, what I try to say, even as someone who has contributed to the discovery of lung Hun's cell immune functions, I think we should not exclude the possibility that lung Hun cells might have functions that we do not know at the moment and maybe may have nothing to do with immunology. I, I think it will be very interesting to find out how the interaction between sensory nerve endings and lung Hun cells does, how does this influence the nerves? How does it influence the dendritic cells? And many, many other really unresolved questions. Uh, so, um, so it's still worthwhile for a young investigator like yourself to say, okay, I'm going to embark on this and I'm going to do intelligent experiments. Maybe I'll come to Vienna and we'll embark on it together. <laughs> so we mentioned that when you have a dysfunction in the normal homeostasis of the skin, you see diseases like atopic dermatitis, psoriasis. What other diseases uh, do you see when you have this um, dysfunction of normal homeostasis? Well, I guess uh, uh, a dysfunction of normal homeostasis uh, uh, can be 
caused by by immunologic mechanisms, but also by totally different uh, uh, pathogenic occurrences. Um, um, obviously, in the case of immunology, I think we should not forget this whole large group of uh, connective tissue diseases that in my view, they don't get enough attention from us dermatologists. I think we as dermatologists, we should uh, be prepared and able to treat patients with lupus, with dermatomyositis, with scleroderma, because if we are not careful and attentive, there are rheumatologists and others uh, who might take kind of these diseases away from us. So we should, we should pay attention uh, uh, to these diseases. Um, um, uh, I'm also uh, uh, very interested in, in this large group of neutrophilic diseases. Uh, in the case of psoriasis, now, but whenever you go to a meeting right now, you constantly hear about psoriasis, atopic dermatitis, lymphocyte-mediated diseases, like implantis and others. But I think I'm also quite fascinated by the, by the occurrence and by the mechanisms that drive uh, neutrophilic diseases, like um, acne. We don't have a full understanding of acne yet. Is there an adaptive component? Yes or no? Uh, can we, by investigating the type of lymphocytes, but also the type of granulocytes present in the lesion, can we actually open totally new avenues for the treatment? Uh, um, a disease which, uh, thank God, uh, has received a lot of attention or is receiving a lot of attention right now. It's HS. It's a terrible disease, hydrodenitis superativa. And, and we have learned a lot. We have learned that, uh, that um, obviously TH17 cells uh, are a major player. So we, we, we are developing now new concepts for the treatment of those types of diseases. Uh, I think... Uh, we also need uh, more innovative treatments for diseases like uh, pyoderma gangrenosum. Uh, what we still do is we, the patients receive corticosteroids, the patients receive cyclosporin and perhaps TNF inhibitors. But, but I think by thorough investigation, we can do much more. And, um, and so there's a whole field that has to be discovered and, and in general, I think our attempts, our therapeutic attempts and our research attempts can be summarized in one sentence. And the sentence is in the search of specificity. When you, when you look at the development of drugs, right? And you, and you go back to the, let's say 1950s, 60s, we had corticosteroids, we irradiated the skin. Later we had antihistamines, but there was not much. And all these drugs that we have also metotrexate, they had many, many effects and many side effects. As I said at the beginning, a rather promiscuous approach mm -hmm. to treatment. And what we did now, and we only owe this to the support of research. Without science, this would have not happened. We now try to develop more and more specific treatments. 
and uh, and that future and that promise is uh, is is fantastic. I, I think uh, you, uh, I think uh, uh, your generation, you will be in a situation. I guess in ten years, fifteen years, we will no longer treat patients with pemphigus vulgaris uh, only with corticosteroids plus uh, Imuran. Even rituximab may not be enough. In 15 years, you're going to say, what I'm going to do is I'm going to eliminate specifically antibodies against desmoglein 3 or desmoglein 1. I leave the rest of the immune system completely unaltered in the search of specificity. The targeted therapy. Yeah, we, a, a targeted therapy. And the target and the target is getting narrower and narrower and better defined over the years. You know, just to add to this, we're talking about neutrophilic um, diseases. I recently just published a case report on um, patients who get a rash called parigopigmentosa, the dermatosis, and they believe that it may be, it's often associated with the- Say it again, I didn't, I didn't hear well. Parigopigmentosa. Okay. They believe that it's associated with a ketogenic diet. And the idea behind this is that ketone bodies might actually induce perivascular neutrophilic inflammation. And it, it makes me think like, what are we using to treat it? Either we could stop the diet and often dermatologists are also prescribing doxycycline or minocycline because they think that it helps to, it inhibits um, neutrophilic chemotaxis and function. But I always find myself thinking, how about if we got said, we don't need this antibiotic, let's just eliminate the need for the antibiotic so we don't create more resistance and let's just take the patient off the diet. And I know some dermatologists are thinking that way, but some are, I think, want to cover both bases. So they prescribe the antibiotic in addition to telling them to return to a normal diet. So it just makes me think about targeted therapies and what you were saying about neutrophilic diseases, and I find it very fascinating. Absolutely, and and I, I guess and you, you will probably confirm that, uh, especially in the case of drugs like doxycycline and also minocycline, many people or many dermatologists don't understand that we are using these compounds especially in diseases like rosacea and others, we don't use them because they have an antibiotic effect. We use them because they also have an anti-inflammatory effect. So the real challenge is we need drugs that uh, we, we need a doxycycline that by itself is not an antibiotic, but only has the anti-inflammatory effect. Then I think this would be a major progress in in, in our attempts to treat diseases like perioral dermatitis, rosacea, and several others. I think the closest thing we've had at this moment maybe is tacrolimus. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you perceive as some of the challenges still ahead for immunology and dermatology? Okay. I know this is uh, a loaded question. <laughs> no, no, I, I think uh, the, the question, uh, from an immunologic viewpoint, they will remain what they are. And I think in, the, in our discussion, we had, we had mentioned several ways how we can pursue them. And uh, the most important thing I see, and this is a, 
shift of paradigms. In the past, we understood ourselves as dermatologists or as physicians in general, we understood ourselves as uh, therapeutic physicians. Mm-hmm. Now, I think we know a lot about skin physiology and we understand skin ph- physiology not only at a cellular level, but also at a molecular level. So I think a great challenge for us is the maintenance of skin homeo- homeostasis. We understand what we need in order to maintain homeostasis. And this is a major challenge from a preventive viewpoint. Number two, the, the, big, the big challenges, uh, the scourges, if someone has all the scourges of mankind, they will remain, right? We have also as dermatologists and as, as a physician, we have to uh, uh, be prepared to recognize, to diagnose and successfully treat infectious diseases, allergic diseases, cancer, metabolic diseases. So these changes, they will remain the same. And, and we have discussed possibilities, what we can do and what and how we can be more specific in our attempts. Uh, politically, as a, as a dermatologist, I think if we attempt the dermatology in the crown of the different medical specialties, the dermatology maintains its position, we also have to do something. I think in our training programs at the universities, at the hospitals, in medical schools, uh, I think we should, we should really try very hard to train competent physician scientists. If we don't do that, uh, there could be a possibility that dermatology becomes marginalized. And I don't want that to happen. I, uh, uh, I think we should, we should uh, be the ones who uh, not only diagnose skin cancer, but also treat it successfully. We have to understand principles of allergic diseases and autoimmune diseases in such a way that these areas will not be taken away from us by so-called clinical immunologists and uh, allergy specialists, rheumatologists. These are all things that uh, in our training programs at the university and the hospitals that has to be uh, considered. Otherwise, uh, we end up uh, as pimple squeezers and mm-hmm. we don't wanna, and we, that's not what, what's really our goal. Right? Thank you, Dr. Stengel, for sharing um, this fascinating conversation with us today and for really teaching us Every, not everything, but the basics of immunology. Is there anything you want to add before we close today? No, I, I think uh, I, I made uh, 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 scientific statements and, and, and defined goals that we have to do as physicians and scientists. And I also defined political goals as far as the whole discipline of dermatovenerology is concerned. Uh, but I... I uh, greatly enjoyed talking to you and I thank you very much for the kind invitation perhaps at some time in the future we'll have the possibility to chat again thank you very much hopefully in person (laughs) I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Derm Club podcast 
If you found the discussion today to be valuable, please subscribe and share. I look forward to seeing you in the next episode as we continue to delve into dermatology and skincare with the world experts.